So we're in New York, but not Manhattan. We're in Long Island, out in the suburbs, a sleepy town called Glen Cove. Continue on New York 25B West for five miles. I'm sitting in a huge 4x4 with a private investigator. But women can get away with murder in this business anyway. Um, the pregnant belly definitely wasn't a hindrance ever, really, other than you're tired, because people don't suspect you as a woman to begin with, and they certainly don't suspect a pregnant woman, or I think men stand out far more. This is Alwyn Triggs, a New York private investigator. Born and raised in Cork, in 1, feet. she moved here in 91, when she was just 17. told me what to turn left onto. <laughs> Today, Alwyn is going on a stakeout. Turn left onto Little Neck. Sitting in a freezing cold car. No toilet breaks as we watch a house for hours on end. Alwyn looks like a regular American soccer mom waiting in the car for her kids. This case is, I was hired by a husband or father. Uh, he has separated from the wife in the middle of a divorce. The wife is claiming she doesn't work, can't work, doesn't have a penny. She uh, kicked him out of the house, moved his best friend in. So she's claiming that she's there alone. There's no man with her. She's no means of support. And she needs money from my client, the husband. And then also the boyfriend is living there. He leaves there in the morning very early and goes to work. So that'll show the judge that she's lying, because she has said, on, I believe, uh, on record, that she lives alone, but he sleeps there every night. Okay, Pops, what are you doing? People usually spend 20 years in the police department before becoming a PI, but all one was different. The frustration of driving in New York begins. The closer you get to the city, the worse it gets. Continue on Little Neck Parkway for a half mile. I was quite happy back at my little suburban house. Alwyn used to work in a bar where one of her regulars was a PI. Not really the kind of guy you'd want to associate with, but a PI nonetheless. And she asked him for a job. He agreed to give her a trial, and she's been a PI ever since. It's actually handier here with me. We'll probably just sit in the front seat like we're just two girls sitting chatting in a car. A few hours you can get away with that. They only get suspicious after a whole day, really. Your destination is on the right. So we sit there, in the cold car, sip on lukewarm coffee, and we talk through some of Alwyn's previous cases. Yeah, this girl went missing in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, and her passport and everything was left at home. They'd said she'd run off with some guy, but she'd left her passport and her ID and everything was sitting at the house. She just kind of, like, disappeared after work one day and never went home. The family had hired um, my boss at the time to get more. They felt like the police weren't doing anything. And we were running around blanketing the place with flyers, talking to people, trying to raise awareness. You know, it was uh, sad to say she was, you know, her ethnicity, I think, came into play. You know, um, they thought she was a runaway or she went off with some guy because there was a rumour about her liking some guy and nobody really cared enough to look into it. It turned out that her uh, sister's boyfriend had actually murdered her and shoved her in the the roof of the building that they lived in. Like there was some kind of way up in the top of the building to like hide her body, and that's where they eventually, you know, found it. But her own, you know, sister's boyfriend had murdered her, so he got done for it, which was good. 
It turns out that the guy had been so obsessed with the dead girl that he started going out with the sister just to get to her. She was his mark all along, and he killed her. But we're not here to discuss that case. My name is Sheena Madden, and I've come to New York to meet Alwyn. We're here to discuss another case. About the Irish. That case kind of took over a bit of my life, for for sure, you know. It happened years ago, and it impacted hundreds of people's lives. Dreams were shattered. Life savings were lost. Friends were betrayed. And lives were ruined. The government should have done something about that. You don't release a guy like that onto the street and never check up on him. It's 2006. There are an estimated 50,000 undocumented Irish in America. Anne Muldoon was one of those. She was 21 when she first landed in New York. Hi, Sheena. Hi, how are you? How are you doing? After I graduated college, I, I came for maybe like three, four months, and I came and I, I knew straight away. I came to New York. I fell in love with it straight away. There was a group of us who were all unfortunately illegal but working here and wanted to stay here and wanted to make New York our home. And we always were, like, talking about it and, like, how can we get legal? And it, it was a drive within me. I was like, I've got get, get, to get legal here, you know. And, and for a number of reasons. One was to go home. Two, you know, to pay taxes, to get health insurance, to, you know, those things, to make a life for myself. We landed in New York and we loved it there. So that's kind of where we made our base. Rob was 23 and had just arrived from Dublin with a group of friends from home. Time moves quick and before you know it, you're there a year and... All of a sudden, you, you, you really love the life that you've made and the experiences that you're having there. But at the same time, you know that you can't go home and come back to it. So you're kind of caught in a, a bit of a no-win situation. So A friend of mine, you know, as I said, we were all talking about getting legal, blah, blah, blah. She was telling me that she was going through this visa process. She was part of a research team that was going on with Yale, and that's how she was getting this visa. She had went home. Um, to Ireland and so she was like well you could be part of this research team too like why don't I introduce you to the head of the researcher and you, you know you've got to pay some fees and but you're going to get legal through this so she's like I was able to go home she'd been here three or four years our immediate reaction was no you're getting scammed you're getting scammed but then the Marley told us so you might think we're getting scammed, but I'm going home next week. You know? Just to turn around. I've been, like, my friends are telling me that he's living there six years, but he's going home next week. He goes, he, this other guy, he's already been home and he's back. You know, so, for, for want of a better phrase, we were kind of, you know, we were stuck over there. And, you know, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You love your life there, but you want to go home and see your family. You want to go home and see your friends. A lot of people, yeah, they haven't been home six, seven, eight years. So we went up to Yale. Um, there was a gang of us. We got the train up to New Haven. And we went into Yale University. We went into one of the lecture rooms. And we were... I remember the look on our faces. We were all like, hey, you know, we're going to get... We're going to get legal here. We're going to be part of this process. And it's going to be great. You can imagine. We were ecstatic, completely over the moon. It was huge. It was absolutely huge. So we went up, came up to Yale Law School, impressive Ivy League campus. There he was, waiting outside. 
He, the man who seemed to be the answer to their prayers, was Ralph Cuccinello, a big Italian-American guy, overweight, shabbily dressed, no suit and tie, maybe not your typical lawyer, but he had charisma. I think this, as we are approaching now, this is the start of Yale's campus. Myself and Anne go back to Yale to walk around. The semester is just beginning and college kids are returning from the holidays. And the bells begin to toll. It's just bringing everything back, you know. Being here, you know, talking about and kind of reliving the steps of coming in and out of Yale. Kind of eerie hearing the bells and walking down here and talking about him. Anne was overwhelmed. It's bringing it all back, she kept saying. This is where Ralph had met us at the at just under under this, this lamp, and he walked us through that door where we can see some people going in right now. And um, it's part that, if I remember, that leads us right into like a huge hallway and the library's not too far away from here, if I remember correctly. It definitely is like something out of the movies, right? It's... You know, we kind of met him outside this, you know, imposing campus and um, shook hands with him and he said, right, I'll take his through. So up he went to security, he just waved his card, his Yale Law School pass, opened the automatic gate, waved to the security guards. And here he was, like the, the lord of the manor, you know, coming and going, no problem. You know, automatic swipes, business cards, the whole lot. So we went in, he gave us the grand tour. So we found a quiet corner, and not even a quiet corner, it was in the, the, the main library, and we sat down at a meeting table. And he went through all the forms, the official forms for <clears throat> getting a green card. He kind of had like a chalkboard. He laid out like these are the steps. He told us there was like it was like a six months process. He told us the reason why that we, we he needed cash was like he had everything down to T. He told us that he needed cash because then there was no direct linked bank account nothing's linked to any bank account so it's just gone straight to the government like that's what he was saying and looking back on an eye it was it is a little naive of us all but we were also desperate he had everyone so paranoid because this is this was the golden ticket this was so important to people and it had had the the chance to drastically change people's lives that they didn't want anything messing it up so anything he was saying to people they were doing he was saying jump, everyone literally was saying how high. He was, um, he had people turning on their friends. Thing had to be top secret, like you can't tell other people unless I can say that you can, you can tell other people. Everything was like, you know, this is, you know, once once you guys get through, that's it, this is gonna, this loophole's gonna close, nobody else is gonna get legal through this. I've gone home. In Chris, uh, for Christmas 2006 and after a few weeks of being home kind of, you know enjoyed my time there enjoyed seeing friends again that I hadn't seen in a couple of years and um, decided it was time for me to go back over um, rang him up 
And he said, yeah, that's no problem. Just leave it with me. I'll uh, give me your dates that you're looking for and I'll sort that out for you. A couple of days went by and I hadn't heard from him, so rang him up. He said, yeah, look, there's a bit of a problem here. It's not 100% sorted out. So it kind of went right. So look, keep me in the loop. I'll sit tight. As I said, I'm going to be top secret. And we were in his in this office in, and he had said to me, like, you know, you're number 57 on the list. You know, is there anything that you would do to move yourself up the list? And I was just like, at that point, I'd given him maybe $11,000, $12,000. It's like, well, I don't have any more money, you know. So I was like looking at him and he kind of like leant over and was like touchy-feely with me. And I was just like, what the heck? Um, I was like, look, I got to go. I got my boyfriend's outside. I got to go, you know, the next train's in 15 minutes, you know, let me think about what you said and I'll contact you later. And he's like, well, he kind of freaked out that I had said that my boyfriend was outside. He was like, what? Like, you told me that, that it was just you. And I was like, well, you know, I didn't want to come the whole way up here on my own. And I just told him I had to go and meet an old friend. And he kind of got a little, fr- and I just ran outside. I got out, I got out, got out of the office as soon as I could. And that was the alarm bell. That was like, this guy's not who he says he is. About a month went by. And, you know, he was giving me updates and he was saying, yeah, look, I'm sorry about this. Um, I might need to send get, send papers over for you to sign. I'm going to, you know, FedEx them over to you to be with you tomorrow. And um, he was kind of keeping me week to week, stringing me along. As I started kicking up a bit of a fuss to him, he obviously seen that I was starting to get annoyed w- with the process. He said, look, I've got some money here. I'll send it home. I've, like, we've got a fund for things like this. I'll send you home some money. So a few checks started coming over, you know, a few hundred dollars here, a few hundred dollars there. And he was kind of just, you know, buying me silence. He got really too... He kind of touched my leg and I was like, whoa, what? Like, and I was, I'm out of here. That's when I contacted all when I just knew. I just called her up. She's going to come our way now, so I'll duck down. As long as you have no lights shining, I'll just duck down when she comes this way. Yeah. I'll have to make a quick you know she's fly wherever she So Anne called up Alwyn Triggs, our private investigator. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm sitting in a freezing cold car on a stakeout. I want to ask Alwyn about that first call from Anne Muldoon. When, when Anne came to me, Anne Muldoon, loveliest girl inside and out you'll ever meet today. Proud Belfast woman was a friend of mine, and she came to me and said, um, "I think I'm being scammed." She was like, "Let me call you right back. Let me do an invest. Let me do a check round. Give me his name." Anne and Alwyn had met previously through a guy Anne used to date. Alwyn was a friend of his, and when the two Irish women met, they hit it off immediately and swapped numbers that day. Anne was fascinated by Alwyn's story of girl from Cork turns New York private investigator. When Ralph touched Anne's leg, the first person she thought to call was Alwyn. So I want to ask Alwyn about that phone call from Anne. The call that turned out to be the first of hundreds Alwyn received from young illegal immigrants. But suddenly, the suspect we've been waiting for a glimpse of all day decides to go for a drive. She's going to go past me, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, she's coming past you now. She's slowing down. She's turning She's turning right. Lovely. Right. Yeah, her yeah. right. So she's picking her up from the train, lovely. Alwyn knew from that first conversation with Anne that Cuccinella wasn't all he seemed. She ran a quick background check and was back on to Anne within minutes. It was the beginning of a case that would see Alwyn go after Ralph like a dog with a bone. I just want to identify the route she's taking to wherever she's going. 
because my report would be something like, you know, at 4.55 p.m., the subject exited her residence in her blah, blah, blah vehicle, you know, identified by license plate. She was accompanied by two minor children, you know, described the kids, and then she proceeded north, south, east, or west on ABC Street, you know, into whatever town. That's kind of the way a surveillance log should look. The tail goes dead. Alwyn decides to head for home. Back in Long Island, Alwyn and I make our way down to her basement, where laundry baskets and toys that her kids have outgrown mingle with boxes of old case files that Alwyn is reluctant to keep in her office. This is a little that I have left on Cuccinello. I didn't have a lot to begin with because um, they had... I'll just take the box upstairs... The Cuccinello file is thick and packed with victims' details. We look at emails that he sent back and forth to unsuspecting new customers, discarded fingerprint cards and copies of young Irish people's passports. I remember at the time when I obtained all of Ralph's rubbish, he lived at a place in Brantford, Connecticut. So I went up there and um, this is some of the remnants of the rubbish that I obtained at the time. Let just close the window. He, uh, you know, the, other than the usual chicken and fish and all that other stuff you get in rubbish, there were some papers. And so I was always, always knew there was more people, always. And so in the rubbish were lists of names. You can see here, I'll just throw stacks of folders. Um, FedEx envelopes. He apparently used FedEx a lot, but there were names and addresses on here. So these were people that he was either about to process or told he processed. I'm sure he told them he did because um, they're torn up in his garbage. And you don't really tear up original prints for any reason. There's nothing wrong with any of these prints. There's no smudges in them. So I don't think he redid them. He probably just took five grand for each one of these people here. We have about 20 people. Um, I have notes of who's in it. This guy's in it for 6,000, in it for 7,000, in it for 10,000, 11,000, 15,000. There's a few 20, a lot of 25,000 because he got them for things like taxes that he said that they owed. He would interview people and say, do you only back taxes? Oh, great, how much? We'll have to take care of that. Cha-ching. You know, Cuccinello's thinking, cha-ching, you owe how much in taxes? That would be his favourite person to deal with that week. There'd be a lot more emails that week to that individual. She runs Ralph Cuccinello's name through the system. There was no mention of a law degree um, or of Yale. I'm just going to go down this quickly because we have about 20 pages of criminal history. Uh, fraud, credit cards, 1991. Uh, the U.S. attorney in Washington arrested him under uh, the name Thomas Nardella for credit card fraud. Credit card fraud again, failure to appear in uh, Newark, New Jersey court in 1989. This was in Danbury, Connecticut. There were some charges in 1989, 1990, 90, 2003. Again, this was in Seattle, Washington in 2003. After it became clear that Ralph was a scam artist with a 20-page long rap sheet, Alwyn and Anne decided that they were going to nail Ralph Cuccinello. They would first hatch a plan to get Anne's money back and then work with the police to bring Ralph in and expose him as the con artist he was. I think I'd give him $11,000 or maybe twelve, But the first time the initial payment was $10,000. So I was like, oh, I don't have $10,000 to lose. I got my, I, you know, she was like, well, first of all, we've got to get, get your money back. She had said, look, Anne, you've got to come up with a way of gaining his trust to get your money back. 
And he always said, like, you want to pull out of this program, you want to move back to Ireland, something happens, I can give you $10,000 back, back within 24 hours. And the next day I called him, like, really early in the morning, I'm like, Ralph, I've got really bad news from home. I had said that my sister was a single mom in England and she had been diagnosed with cancer and I was leaving on the next flight. And I needed the money back. I wouldn't be going through with the program. He was like, no problem. Give me an address. I'll send you a check. What the heck? He's never going to write us a check. So I called him back. And as soon as I said a lawyer, he freaked out. He was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't need to get another lawyer involved. This is t-. like, he was like, this is top secret. Or like, we can't get another, like this, this is the loop in the immigration process. No problem. And I was like, well, like, can we, can we do this transaction in cash? Or can we go to the bank or whatever? So... So he was, he kind of was, got all shady and, and then he, he's like, let me call you back and he kind of hung up and then like an hour or so later he called me back and he was like, meet me tomorrow at the train station in New Haven and I'll give you money back. I met him and he gave me $10,000, $9,000 back. He said that there was a $1,000, like I'd given eleven dollars or $12,000. He said that the other money had been used on fees and... Um, he gave, and it was like in dollar bills like it was like in a plastic bag it was like it wasn't money that you'd take from a bank like it was like there was dollar bills five dollar bills it, was, it wasn't wrapped up in bundles it was just like a bag of money thrown together so it was a joke it was, it was a joke it's the, it's the innocent innocent people that I feel really sorry for like there was a woman from South America and her mother, I believe, had somehow become separated, went back to South America or was deported or something, and they had a nine-year-old kid. And Ralph, the mother, was telling me through tears and, and an interpreter, um, she would say, don't worry, you're going to see your grandma again real soon. You're going to see grandma real soon. I think the mother was very ill and they thought they might never see her and she might pass. And he was reassuring this nine-year-old. and The child was crying. The mother was crying. Now, that, that was one of the ones that really got me, I think. I, I remember thinking, I'm really going to sink my teeth into this one and give it everything to get him, you know, taken off the streets because it was just diabolical. There were a lot of actual stories like that. One girl I, I interviewed up in Connecticut, I remember a waitress, and we went into the back of the bar restaurant she works at, and she was crying, the usual, like everybody was. But she said she was physically sick, literally at work. She was going into the bathroom and just vomiting constantly. And I believe that was one of the headings in the newspapers was, you know... Um, you know, woman vomits, cash lost, and, and all this. It was just very, very sad to see what happened to people. Alwyn decided to get in touch with Ralph. She was to be a young illegal, and she wanted into the program. She called Ralph up, and she decided to record it. took a few days of phone calls and emailing back and forth to convince Ralph that she was fit for the programme. He eventually agreed to accept her on the basis that someone had recently pulled out of the programme. A girl called Anne Muldoon. Hello? Hi, this is Ralph Cuccinello. Okay, what can I do for you? Well, um, is there any chance that you can um, help me out the way you, you know you would do for her? Is there 
So these initial six and I um, with Detective Jose Rodriguez, he was worked in at the sixth precinct at the time in Manhattan. I talked to him and we said, let's do a sting, bring him in. You know, it was the only way to do it. And so they wanted me to get him to come to New York. They didn't have jurisdiction in Connecticut, didn't want it to become a federal case. Everybody wanted a piece of Ralph and they wanted to bring him back to New York where the victim started. And we felt like the most hard done by, even though everybody wanted him. So I um, decided, along with um, the text from the 6th Precinct, that I'd try to get him to come to New York. There were tense moments as they waited for Ralph to cross over from the state of Connecticut into the state of New York. Alwyn rendezvoused with the two detectives from the Elizabeth Street 5th Precinct. They wore dark-coloured business suits and sunglasses. They never cracked a smile. They gave her a police scanner and fitted her with a wire. She also had a video camera hidden in her bag. There were undercover police lining nearly every block back as far as the Queensboro Bridge. When they radioed through, Alwyn knew Ralph was on his way. Wearing a long-sleeved shirt, wrinkled dress pants and sweating profusely, Ralph approached the cafe. Alwyn was waiting outside. Smile for the camera, Ralph, she said as he greeted her. As a confused expression moved across his face, the detectives handcuffed him. They needed two pairs of cuffs to reach across his wide back. She moved, all you know, all went just bang, bang, bang. She came by and and showed me, showed him get arrested. Like she'd taken footage of him and she's like, look, he got arrested. Like it's, he's done, he's gone, you know? Which was just the best, at the time it was the best feeling in the world. It was like, thank, thank God, you know, he can't do this to anybody else. Before I knew it then, the phone call came from my friend saying, that's it, it's over. The whole thing's a scam. He's been arrested. 
uh, there was a sting operation in New York <clears throat> and he's been arrested. Then I didn't get to leave it on my terms. I was, I was fuming, absolutely fuming. So I knew that this girl was giving him money. So I contacted her. I'm like, listen, you gotta, you gotta meet me. Ralph isn't who he said he was. And I had a backlash from her. She was like, how dare you? She's like, I hired this guy. Like I trust him and he's, I trusted you. He's going to get you legal in this country. And then you've got a private investigator involved. And kind of had, you know, everyone was, everyone was out trying to get what they could over. Could have people, you know, trying to, you know, there was a race to cooperate in the hopes that you might get something out of it, you might get money back, you might get some sort of legal status out of it, you know? People, you know, with the same greediness and... You know, same greediness and... Whatever the opposite kind of camaraderie was, there, was, there wasn't a lot of camaraderie. People were bitter over it. It's that kind of humiliation in being, in being scammed as well. appointment with Timothy Reardon at the state attorney's office. Is that here or do yeah. I? Yeah. Okay. Do I need to take all this gear off before yeah. I go through? You told us to. I can take this through? Well, sure. Yeah. You got to take it. Yeah. You... Cuccinella was held in the McDougall Walker Correctional yeah. Institute in Suffield, Connecticut. He was charged with one count of racketeering, two counts of larceny in the first degree, 56 counts of larceny in the second degree and 56 counts of fraudulently impersonating an attorney. Yeah, from Ireland. Will I come through? You gonna walk her up? Go ahead. Thank you. I'm old and left too bad in the grave. Now listen, I'm old, so I can't move it so fast. That's okay. It's all right? I'll try and keep up. I think that's brother Tim. Tim? The man leading the investigation was Timothy Reardon. Uh, I'm the supervisory inspector in the New Haven State's Attorney's Office. Initially, the New York authorities started to investigate this case. The Chief State's Attorney's Office, which oversees this office, had received a complaint from perhaps Owen Triggs asking for Connecticut to look into this matter because there were many more victims in the Connecticut area than, than there were in the New York City area. And... Um, because it was centered around Yale University, that request came to this office, and uh, I took it and ran with it. Ralph was um, set up at Yale University, uh, had somehow managed to um, come up with a Yale uh, ID, a Yale um, email address, and was advertising himself as an attorney who worked with the immigration clinic, who could somehow uh, help young uh, immigrants who were here illegally seeking their green cards. I do think that someone should have looked a little bit more closely into Cuccinello's um, background, and I will say that this scam could have never uh, evolved into the magnitude that it did without Cuccinello having the Yale Law School ID, the Yale email address, and the kind of air of association with the law school. Many of these immigrants 
walked into his office in the law school and they had no reason to believe that they were dealing with someone other than a Yale law professor. I suppose you're probably wondering how Ralph got into Yale in the first place. Stephen Duke was an esteemed criminal law professor at Yale. Duke represented Martin Tachetta, a mob boss who he argued was wrongfully convicted of murder. Stephen Duke was interviewed as part of this investigation. I, I know that Stephen Duke was representing a New Jersey mobster by the name of Martin uh, Tachetta, I believe, and Mr. Tachetta was um, serving a, a life prison sentence for murder in the state of New Jersey. Uh, Professor Duke, Attorney Duke, felt that this was an improper uh, conviction and had sought to overturn it. Uh, I understand that Cuccinello had written a letter to Stephen Duke on behalf of Martin Tichetta, perhaps um, providing an alibi uh, regarding the murder. And so based on that letter and further correspondence, uh, Stephen Duke asked Cuccinello to come up to Yale to help work with him on this particular case. Ralph had stood as a witness at the trial, and years later, he reconnected with Tachetta's lawyer, Stephen Duke, and came to serve as a volunteer for him at Yale. He got a security swipe, a Yale email address, and access to the offices. Cuccinello, like any good scam artist, saw the opportunity to uh, blossom into something else entirely. In August 2008, Ralph was sentenced to 30 years in prison. He will serve 20. I think with the guidelines that are in place now, I think he will probably serve about 85% of his time. But, you know, Ralph does have a checkered past. He has a number of felony convictions, and so that may play into his ability to get any early release. I would think if he were to get out, I mean, he still has a, a fair number of years to serve. I don't know how his health is. He's a rather large man. But I think that if he were to get out, he'd probably go back to the same scamming. He's done it for going on three decades now. I don't think he knows any other way to operate in this life. One of Ralph's victims was engaged and went home for a visit. When it all fell apart, she was never able to return to America or to her fiancé. She was quoted at the time, To my fiancé and friends in America, it is as if I am dead. There one day and gone the next, without any chance of saying goodbye or a farewell kiss. Who's on the phone, Leo? Is it Elmo? <laughs> Ask the phone, is it Elmo? Elmo. 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 Speak Elmo. to me, Elmo. Elmo. <laughs> Where's Elmo? Rob was never able to go back to America either. He now lives in Dublin and has just become a father and a stepfather. <laughs> Although, you know, you, you probably, you know, you were taken in by, by the dream or something. It wasn't, it wasn't like a Ponzi scheme. It wasn't like a timeshare. We weren't buying a ropey apartment in Gran Canary, you know. We weren't duped in that sense. It was more... You know, it was more than the financial gain. It was, it was lifestyle. It was, you know, it was a social thing. Being part of being able to come out from the shadows and emerge. But uh, it, was, it was very difficult in the aftermath. And very particularly, it's not something I enjoy talking about probably too much. I've come to terms with it over time. I'm sure there's people who haven't. Um, probably a lot of people still still very bitter over it. Years later, some of the scam makes sense, but he still wonders about things. 
Like, is there any money left? What did Cuccinello do with it all? How did he fool Yale? And how did Cuccinello get people through airports? In the cold the day after we figured the whole thing was a scam, of course that was the number one question we were asking. Like, how, how was, how were people getting in and out? I mean, you know the numbers. How many people did he have in this scheme? Mm, just over 100. So he had 100 people in, mm. five grand a pop minimum. So- Sometimes more, sometimes a lot more. Yeah, sometimes a lot more. So some people were in for 60 grand. People might have had back paid taxes or, you know, I don't know, the records that he'd go, oh, well, you know, if you want to come in, you have to, I'm going to have to charge a double on this, you know. So he'd pulled in, what, possibly 800 grand. Yeah? So it's not outside the rounds of possibility that he had people paid off in airports, you know, if... He was making your travel arrangements, so it's not outside the realms of possibility that he had someone paid off. I've no proof on that. I don't know whether you've heard of that before in the people that you've interviewed. So that's that was a common thought that we had. I've lived here for a couple, of, like couple many years, and I will not give it up. I'm like people who live upstairs from us have they are really good friends. They're my friend's brother, actually. They pay like five hundred dollars more than me, so I live. It's just rent stabilized, so. When it only goes up a certain percentage every year, so that I'm like, I'm staying here. Nine years on, Anne is now an American citizen. She's moved on. She lives in Queens in her rent-controlled apartment. Which is, it's big for a New York apartment. The, the city's great that way. Like you can, the subway is right at the end of the block, so you can just it takes me 30, 35 minutes to get into work, which is not. It's incredible. We're in Alwyn's house. It's incredible to just find it all in this. In this pile of paperwork, you know. Uh, yeah, and I, I didn't even know it was there. I just assumed I kept records on everybody, yeah. so we knew it would be in there somewhere. And as we root through the box of paperwork, a name jumps out on a sheet of paper. It's Rob, the guy we've interviewed earlier. So it just, I, this is one of my lists, Cuccinella victim list, and on number seven is Rob with, uh, is that his phone number? Yeah, that's his phone number, yeah. Uh, I, just have I suppose I should tell you, I'm Rob's partner. We've been together seven years. That's how I became interested in this story in the first place, about the scam. And then Irish female, 23, gave him money and then got her money back just before I was Is Elmo on the phone? Say hello, Elmo. I met Rob in Dublin after he came home. Say hello, Elmo. We may never have met if it wasn't for Ralph Cuccinello impersonating a lawyer. Elmo! 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 Not that I'd ever thank him for it. Rob definitely wouldn't. (laughs) Who's on the phone, Leo? Is it Elmo? (laughs) Ask the phone, is it Elmo? Elmo. 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 Where's Elmo? 